Thanks for downloading Development Drums number 19. My name is Owen Barder in Addis Ababa. Today's episode is unusual because we have a guest interviewer, Alison Evans from the Overseas Development Institute. And I am, for this week only, one of the interviewees. Over to Alison. We're here to discuss uh, a very interesting paper by Owen Barder. Um, on Beyond Planning, Markets and Networks for Better Aid. My name's Alison Evans and I'm the director of ODI. With me to discuss this I have, obviously, Owen, uh, who's director of Aid Info at Development Initiatives, and Roger Riddell uh, with Oxford Policy Management, and also the author of two very uh, well-known and important books in the field of thinking about foreign aid, Foreign Aid Reconsidered, uh, a well-established classic in the field, and a more recent book does foreign aid really work and uh, I'm delighted to have you here Roger and Owen this is all about your paper Um, and I thought I'd start off by saying could you just summarize for us what what's the problem you're trying to address in this paper? Well the problem is this that most of us who work in the development industry think that aid works but could work a lot better And the challenge is that we seem to understand a lot of things about what needs to happen to make aid work better. We know that we need to reduce proliferation, we need to untie aid, we need to put developing countries in charge of their own uh, development trajectory. And yet we seem to be making very slow progress on actually making that happen. And so the question I was asking is, are we going about the right way of actually changing the aid system to deliver those changes that we all think we need? Very good. I mean, let me just come back to you on a... You've got some, some some quite profound ideas in this paper about how you define the problem. And let me just quote back to you a phrase that you use on a number of occasions in the paper. That is the need to change the determinants of the equilibrium in the aid system. And that's quite a complex idea. I just wondered if you could give a bit of a, an elaboration of what you mean by that. So the thought here is that the reason the aid system is as it is is because we are trying to balance various different interests, and and particularly the interests of donors and of recipients. Donors, um, although they share a common view that we want to reduce poverty, um, they have different views about how that should be done. They have different views about what contribution they want to make to it. And of course, actually reducing poverty is a whole variety of different things. It it isn't just a single measure, it's different people, sometimes it's um, helping people uh, immediately, sometimes it's helping them grow in the future, uh, people in different countries. Um, So so donors have a whole variety of objectives, which are not the same among donors, and they're also not necessarily the same as the interests of the developing countries themselves. And of course, as well as trying to reduce poverty, donors are also interested in other perfectly legitimate foreign policy objectives, promoting their own industries, uh, their security interests, their strategic and and reputational interests. And so they are trying to balance, they're trying both to reduce poverty and pursue those objectives. And developing countries also have their objectives. And so what we end up with is an equilibrium of the best way of of meeting, meeting those different objectives. And the problem with a lot of the reform agenda in aid at the moment is that we behave as if that wasn't true, as if um, it's simply a question of deciding that we're going to not proliferate so much and not have so many aid agencies. But if there are deep reasons why we have so many aid agencies operating in so many countries, then we need to start asking ourselves, how can we address the reasons why we have this, 
rather than simply saying, well, let's, let's just reduce the number of uh, countries in which each donor works. Roger, can I bring you in at this point? Is this a problem that you recognise? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think the paper uh, uh, articulates well the sorts of problems that face uh, individual donors, donors and, as a group, and uh, recipients as well. Um, I think another uh, uh, important uh, attribute of the paper is that it lays out clearly uh, a whole series of uh, quite well thought out recommendations of how we can move from where we are to a better future. The aim of the paper looking at how to increase aid effectiveness. Very good. Um, Owen, but I'm going to press you a little bit before we move on to some of your recommendations about a way forward. Um, this idea that the current equilibrium in the aid system is a sort of product of this balance of competing interests and multiple objectives, and you refer a lot to the institutional economics literature that tries to understand problems of, of collective action and incentives and feedback loops, and there's a lot in there. I just want you to sort of push a little bit further and say, what is essentially different about the analysis that you're bringing to this problem? Is this one that we kind of know, but what, what if anything is different, do you think, about the way you've packaged this analysis together? Well, I, I'm certainly drawing on a, a huge amount of literature, including actually um, Roger's work on what characterises the aid industry. And as you say, there is um, a literature on new institutional economics for which Eleanor Ostrand and Oliver Williamson just got the Nobel Prize. Um, so it's, it's really a question of how that analysis applies to this industry. And there are some peculiarities about the aid system that make it a, um, if not a special case, then one at the end of the spectrum for, um, for questions of public economics. And, and particular problems are, for example, imperfect information. Now, in any public service, there is imperfect information about exactly what service is being provided, um, and a, uh, the question of how we ensure that, uh, that we act collectively. But those problems are made much harder in the aid system, where the intended beneficiaries of what we're doing are so far away from the people who are really making the decisions. It's very difficult, prohibitively difficult actually, to really know whether the things that we want to do are having the impact on the people that we're trying to help. And that is, that is a strong case of what happens in a variety of other public services. And another big problem is that this is a case where we're dealing with multiple sovereign governments, none of whom is in a position to tell other sovereign governments what to do or to, uh, to enforce an agreement on anybody else. Now that's quite an unusual circumstance compared to some of the domestic public policy challenges. So this is really taking, taking the standard analysis of, of new institutional economics and applying it to a specific case of the aid industry where these problems are really really large. Very good. Um, Roger, within uh, the analysis of the problem facing the, the aid industry, Owen makes quite a strong critique of a planning solution. Um, do you agree with that? Um, uh, in part, yes. Um, I think to some extent he caricatures uh, the planning problem. Uh, and when I was reading it, I was thinking of the case of Botswana. Uh, Botswana has produced a succession of development plans. I think they're on their eighth or ninth at the moment. And in Botswana's case, the plan provides a framework around which uh, the market is meant to operate and function. 
and provides signals for donors if they want to engage in Botswana's development or not. One of the requirements of an aid donor coming into Botswana is that they have to have consistency in what they are proposing with the development plan. Now, it seems to me that that sort of planning, providing an overall structure within which the market can operate, fits comfortably within your framework. But I think many would say that that is a planning framework, but it's not an extreme central planning uh, 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 approach, which is what you rightly criticise in your paper. Owen, the caricaturing the planning solution? No, I think that's fair. I think to some extent, you know, the, the kind of extreme version of this is that the aid industry has designed a system that requires each country to have a kind of a GOS plan where um, the party apparatchiks decide what their priorities are and then donors, in the best case, are invited to pick items on that, like a wedding list of things. Uh, these are the things that we're going to uh, buy for this country. And in the in the more extreme cases are actually, you know, we have production committees where we sit down and the donors um, uh, agree who's going to produce which widgets towards the grand plan. And that's only partly a caricature. The reality, increasingly, for people in developing countries delivering aid programmes is they are spending more and more of their time in these committees trying to agree with each other who is doing what. And the problem that they face is that, unlike the Soviet Union Gosplan, there isn't anybody in charge. There isn't anybody who can say, you, you this factory, must produce uh, these widgets and you're going to produce something else. Um, so these, these discussions are interminable and largely inconclusive. And of course, we're incre we, other aspects of the old Stalinist uh, the old Stalinist regime are beginning to emerge, Potemkin villages. Um, uh, Jeff Sachs is going around um, building villages uh, to show what could happen, uh, to bring uh, important visitors to, to see what could happen. So, so some of the... Yes, it's a caricature, but it, it, the truth is that a lot of the mindset about how we solve the problem is, because we need to coordinate amongst ourselves, probably the best way to do that is to sit down together and agree who's going to do what. But when you, whenever you take the language of the aid harmonisation agenda and you substitute in any other aspect of our normal lives, it sounds a bit strange. You know, if the, if the manager of Starbucks was to announce that we were going to try and harmonise the coffee bar industry, you would think that was a strange thing to try to do. That doesn't seem like the best way of solving the, uh, the challenge of how many coffee bars we want. Um, and so uh, the question is what, why in the aid industry we reach so naturally to the idea that we're going to sit down together and agree who does what. And we don't look to the other mechanisms, that, that particularly markets, that are used in, in almost every other aspect of our life. And indeed which have been a big part of the solution to the new public management agenda in other public services. We have moved away from that kind of planning framework and committee framework in the delivery of domestic public services, and the aid industry has been largely untouched by that. Mm, interesting point. So if not planning, then what? Um, in a world of, and an industry of, you know, of asymmetric information, of multiple actors with conflicting interests and objectives, of a long delivery chain, of the kind of challenges of building an effective accountability feedback loop, if not planning, then what? What's the solution? Well, I think the answer to that I think there isn't a, a single solution. Uh, the question is, are there things that we can do that tackle these underlying problems of political economy? And I'm not 
just as I don't believe that planning is the answer to this, I also don't believe that markets are the answer to this. And uh, some people, you know, uh, who perhaps have an ideological preference for markets, have uh, have said that what we need is markets that will, you know, we, we take away we take away the government function. Markets will solve this problem. Markets won't solve this problem. And there are, uh, there are at least two important reasons for that. One is that we don't have a price mechanism in this market, and markets don't work very well without prices. And the other reason is uh, that the intended beneficiaries, the people who are supposed to benefit from these activities, have no power in this relationship. They are not the people who get to decide what happens. And if you have a market where uh, the people making the decisions are not the people who are affected by those decisions, then the market won't work. And the other reason why markets won't work, and we're speaking now at the time of the, uh, in the middle of a financial crisis, is that markets in general need to be within a framework of social norms, of regulation, um, of, of information. And so, you know, in general, I don't buy the idea that markets are the solution to all our problems. But just as markets won't solve everything, and nor will planning solve everything, what we need also is a, is a much more information-rich environment. And my argument is that a combination of collective regulation plus market-like mechanisms to make choices about who does what and an information-rich environment that solves some of these problems about not having a price and not knowing how this is impacting on the beneficiaries, that that combination of things can gradually change the incentives for people making decisions in aid. So actually you make quite a strong appeal for a hybrid, almost. You call it a collaborative market in the paper a combination of market-based mechanisms and networks and this point you make about populating the environment with much more information and transparency. Do you find that a compelling vision, Roger? Um, yes, I do find it a compelling vision and I think it's a, a very important contribution that is made. But my question is, what makes you think that we have any chance of moving in that direction? Um, it seems to me that the question that is left lingering in your paper is whether and how the recommendations you make will be implemented. Let me take one example of that. One of the, as I read it, one of the key recommendations you make uh, upon which a number of others flow is in relation to tide aid. And you say, and I quote, uh, the proposal is, as an immediate first step, aid should be completely untied. Now, aid remains, for many donors, uh, in different ways, tied. Uh, I think my analysis of the OECD figures suggests that only 30% of aid is completely untied in spite of all the commitments that people have made. That's your proposal. Now, my question to you is... How are you going to move from the present position of continuing untie? The Paris Declaration speaks eloquently about untie. Um, but how is your proposal going to be implemented? It's the how that I have uh, concerns about. No, I think that's absolutely the right, uh, the right challenge. And um, part of the answer to this is, is, a, uh, is an evasive one, which is that however hard it is to agree better rules of the game, that must be easier than, try, than not having effective rules of the game and trying to agree every single decision among a whole series of, group, of donors with different objectives. That 
that it might, it might, whereas it might be possible to get the donors to coordinate to change the system together, the idea that, you can, that, if, we, that if we're unable to do that, that we can nonetheless, nonetheless ask people who are implementing aid projects to find a way to solve these problems at an individual level seems to me impossible. So I agree that this is hard, but it seems to me an order of magnitude less hard than what we're currently trying to do. But, but more positively, I, it seems to me that um, this is a bit like asking the question, why would anybody agree to make their central bank independent? Now, we all know that governments want to retain control over monetary policy because they want to be able to uh, ensure that times are good in the run-up to election, for example. But they also know that it's in their long-term interest to give up that right um, and hand it over to an independent central bank because that, that secures their long-term interests. And in a way, what I'm saying is that we need the kinds of institutional commitment to do things which in our, are in our long-term interests, which tie the hands of individual decision-makers in the short term to get that long-term benefit. And many of the things that we need to do to tie their hands are things that could be individually politically popular. So, for example, high levels of transparency is something that governments on the one hand feel a bit, you know, particularly the bureaucracies feel a bit nervous about because um, they're not entirely sure that they want to subject themselves to that scrutiny. But they know actually that they can get a lot of public support for the idea that they're going to make aid more transparent. And so they might be willing to take that political trick, um, tell their bureaucracies that they have to accept a bit of discomfort. And so if the individual components are politically plausible, then you might be able to get the aid donors to bind themselves to a set of institutional arrangements that in the end then help you to get to a better aid system. No, I agree. I think your recommendations on information sharing and transparency are very, very positive. Uh, you also have a section that is headed, why might donors agree to these reforms? And you put forward a number of ideas, and it seems to me that they're logically consistent and powerful. Um, however, uh, to, to come back to the question a different way, your focus, as I read it in the paper, was on what happens internally within aid agencies. And I wonder whether for a number of key issues and decisions, the locus needs to be wider than that, the terrain of political economy. And I, 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 I think another powerful positive about the paper is that it talks explicitly about political economy. It seems to me that that's where aid should be discussed. But it seems to me that, that, that a number of crucial problems with aid lie outside the institution of the aid agency and within the wider political framework within which uh, aid uh, operates. Let me give an example. You quite rightly speak about the problems of the lack of predictability uh, about aid and the volatility of aid, and you quote a paper, uh, which I hadn't seen, but I think it's very interesting that... Uh, uh, this study showed that maybe the effectiveness of aid could be reduced by about 30% because of the results of um, uh, volatility and lack of predictability. But aid, as we know, is determined by many uh, bilateral agencies by short-term political considerations. Uh, five or six years ago, Iraq, Afghanistan and Pakistan were not in the top 10 list of the 22 OECD donors. Now there are only three countries, Ireland, Belgium, and Denmark, that do not have those three countries in their top ten uh, recipients of their aid. Uh, 
So it seems to me that, that to address that particular cluster of problems, which you quite rightly identify as really important, you've got to look outside the institution of the aid agencies to where those decisions are made. Uh, that's absolutely right. And um, uh, there are some... Uh, uh, there are some challenges within the internal incentives within aid agencies. But as you say, many of these are challenges to do with the politics that drive aid agencies rather than the politics within them. But if you, if you take the example of predictability, this is, this is a good example where the industry has said, we have a problem with predictability, let's agree to be more predictable. And actually, I think the industry should be saying, we have a problem with predictability, why is that? And you've just given a good example of one reason why that is. And is there something we could do that would create incentives not to behave that way? Now, one thing is the transparency agenda. If we had a clearer idea of how much this is costing and what the damage is to the outputs that we're producing, we could have a choice. You can have more predictable aid and produce bigger outputs but forego some other kinds of benefits, or you can retain the flexibility to change your uh, aid budget from one year to another, and then you'll produce for fewer outputs. Because this is an industry in which we never measure our outputs and we never link our inputs to our outputs, we're unable to, to make that trade-off and offer that trade-off to our politicians. And so the politics are that it's always more attractive to retain flexibility to move the aid budget from one place to another. But another, another way in which we could uh, tackle the politics of predictability is by linking, is, it, I mean, when you think of what happens in other um, industries, people have contracts. And the question is why those contracts wouldn't make sense, you know, pr precisely to avoid this problem. And, it, and it's not just within the private sector, but within other parts of the public sector we enter into long-term commitments. What is it about the aid industry that makes us uncomfortable about having those kinds of contracts? And... Um, it, it, it's, it's thinking through how we could change the incentives for the decision makers so that those problems like predictability, uh, they feel politically able to do the things that we all know need to be done. Owen, can I pick you up actually? You mentioned, uh, it was a nice segue, you mentioned the issue of contracting. Would it be fair to say you're, you're pretty keen on competition in the context of, of offering some, some ideas about how to move the aid industry forward? Um, there's quite a lot in there about encouraging variation and selection as opposed to the current discourse around harmonisation and alignment. I mean, would it be fair to say that those are rather different ideas about actually we could benefit from much stronger doses of com competitiveness and a tendency towards difference rather than similarity? Um, but how... How well evidenced do you think the argument is that market-based mechanisms really can work in this environment? Give us a little illustration of where you see it working now and why we should build on that. Well, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack in there. As an economist, uh, you know, in my, uh, in my bloodstream, I think that competitiveness is, is a good thing, or at least contestability is a good thing. That doesn't necessarily mean there have to be multiple suppliers, but there has, every supplier that's in the market has to feel... Uh, the hot breath of, of a possible alternative on the back of their neck, if they're going to keep uh, if they're going to keep focused on the job. Um, so yes, my you know my instincts tell me that that within reason, you need contestability and competitiveness. That said, when you look at the most successful development experiences, on the whole, they haven't been ones with multiple aid agencies. They've been ones with a single supplier of aid: Botswana, Korea, Taiwan. 
you know, when you look at these, actually the most successful examples of aid-driven development haven't had a multiplicity of aid agencies behaving in quite the way that, that uh, they're behaving now. So I think we, ha we, have to be, um, uh, we have to be thoughtful about that. For me, the, the competition really needs to come in the competition of ideas. So let me give you an example. We, uh, I'm a big believer in budget support. I think budget support is a, a jolly effective way of giving aid. I'm conscious that the way that has come about, to the extent it has, within the aid industry, has been through bureaucratic warfare. People who believed in this won the argument within some aid agencies to make it happen. And I'm, you know, I'm proud to have been one of the people who made that argument and are making it happen. But actually, that shouldn't be the way we make decisions. The, the competition should be that the people who want to suggest budget support articulate what the benefits are, how we will know whether we're achieving them, and are then held to account for having delivered them. And that they go up against people who have an alternative model, who say that we should be giving aid through civil society organisations or through running our own projects, who should also be invited to explain what the benefits are and how they will demonstrate that they've been achieved. And then let's have a competition among those, and perhaps some variation across them at the beginning to see which ones are working better. And I think what I'm arguing for is, is not so much a question of markets versus planning, but evolution versus design. Uh, what we lack, ultimately, is a mechanism that ensures that we have a way of having a, a series of different ideas, testing them, and then selecting in the good ones and selecting out the bad ones. And, and you know, this is Charles Darwin, not me. To do that, you need two things, variation and selection. And so it seems to me that when we think about how we change the aid system, we shouldn't be saying um, at the outset, I think budget support is the best way to go, or I think that uh, some other mechanism is the best way to go. We should be saying, what are, what are the ways we can build into our system those components of variation and selection that will give us results in the end? That vision is sort of predicated around, um, which seems very compelling in many respects, is predicated around the assumption that one can regulate this thing. Roger, are we convinced that you can do that? Well, the, one of the, it seems to me, lessons of the financial crisis uh, is that um, you need some sort of adjudicator or adjudication system or regulator or regulatory framework to enable the market to operate as um, perfect competition suggests it should. Uh, I think that your arguments for uh, bringing the market in are very, very persuasive. If you have a situation where two or three donors are offering a recipient country uh, models of social sector engagement that are different and that the recipient can't look at them and compare, to them, uh, compare them and challenge the donors in relation to their efficiency and effectiveness, then that's obviously uh, suboptimal. But I think that the, uh, uh, the, the, the way that I would think through how to achieve what you're looking at is to ask whether the recipient ought to be playing a more uh, proactive and powerful role in terms of challenging the donors to provide something that's more efficient and effective. One of the key aspects of the Paris Declaration is building up the capacity so that recipient countries 
can build their own plans. We've spoken a little about planners, uh, park that for a little uh, to one side, uh, build their own plans, and that the recipient country is the 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 organ that is going to coordinate the aid, not the not the aid donors. Now, now let me, let me just ask yeah. you: your paper is replete with recommendations to donors, but it is silent on how to increase the capacity of the recipient to use more power uh, to uh, uh, run with and, in fact, to champion some of the recommendations you made. Right. Now, I think this is an absolutely critical question about um, where the competitive pressure comes from in this framework. And like you, I would like to believe that the beneficiaries, the intended beneficiaries of aid, are the drivers of the competitive pressure, the driver performance. And I think, if, I think one challenge for people who have thought about how markets and competition might work in aid is that it's, it's extremely difficult to see how that's going to happen. And the reason it's extremely difficult, I think, is that, is that much as it, we would like it to be true, it, it turns out to be the wrong conceptual starting point because the people who are the intended beneficiaries of aid are not the people who have the money and make the decisions at the outset. Now, in your book, Foreign Aid Reconsidered, you made an excellent, uh, um, elegant suggestion for the idea that donors should put money into a single global pot and then developing countries would know how much aid they were going to get and then they would be in a position to choose who was going to supply that aid in what form. And that way you, you um, disentangled the question of how much aid am I going to get from the question of who's going to do it and what are they going to do. And that puts them in a much stronger position. But that, if I may say so, is, is an example of the kind of wishful thinking that isn't going to happen because donors uh, um, want to pursue their interests and are not, and are not going to give up their, uh, their ability to provide aid by putting it into a, a single pot. And so uh, what I'm saying is, is that where possible we should make the beneficiaries um, uh, we should empower them and, and there are interesting examples of things like vouchers and actually the, the best way of, of empowering intended beneficiaries is to give them cash because then they can go and decide for themselves what they want to buy and that seems to me to be a very good way to do it but where, where we can't do that for a variety of reasons and particularly where it comes to the provision of public goods where giving money to individuals isn't going to result in the provision of public goods, then I think we have to accept that the, that the competitive pressure has to come from the donor end. It has to come from the purchaser's choices about where aid will be most effective. Um, and what, what we need to find a way to do is make sure that those purchaser decisions are influenced by and aligned with the, the, the preferences and interests of the intended beneficiaries. But I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that we can really empower those intended beneficiaries to make the choices, because they don't have the budget, they don't have the money. Yeah, I need to come back to you on, uh, on your comment on my book. Uh, and my comment is this. One person's unrealistic proposal could well be another person's agenda for political action. Uh, 15, 20 years ago, I attended a uh, lunchtime seminar at ODI where the issue of the Tobin tax was discussed and the general conclusion was this was hot air and it had absolutely no political mileage at all. Now the idea is being championed by politicians. 
My second example is the April G20 meeting held in London. Uh, there was a background paper produced for politicians which proposed that to address the problems of the environment, a central fund was created to which donors contributed and that allocated on the basis of need funds to a particular de developing countries, very similar to what I was proposing in relation to aid. So, you know, what, what one can at one stage of the political history view as a stupid suggestion, at another can become reality. The trick is to see how one can move from one to the other. I should just say, I don't think it's a stupid suggestion. <laughs> I, just, I just don't think it's going to happen. But I, you know, I, I think it would be an attractive way of re resolving one of these challenges mm. that the market currently has, which, which is at the moment that, if, unlike other markets, in which once you have one supplier, you don't want another supplier to give you the same product, that isn't true, by and large, in, in the aid market. You, you, very poor countries are, are not in a position to be able to turn down a donor who shows up wanting to give them aid. And if, if your mechanism could be made to work, then that would help to address that problem and separate out the amount of funding from the nature of the funding. I think that would be terrific. Owen, I think the mark of a good paper is always the kind of the, the scribble factor level. And your paper has a very high scribble factor. So I think on that score alone, this is a terrific launching off point for really good debate. I mean, just to, to finish off, and of course there's much more we could talk about, but just for now, what would you hope some of the next steps to come out of this paper? Where would you like to see the, the you know, this paper contributing to future debate? Well, I think um, I'm very clear in the paper that the list of um, illustrative ideas um, that uh, might go into building the kind of combination of markets networks and regulation that I have in mind is, is, is just that. It's intended to illustrate and, and make real the, the rather conceptual discussion. Um, but it's not intended to be a, either an exhaustive list uh, or indeed a very well evidenced um, policy agenda. Um, so what I'd be interested in uh, people embracing is the idea that we need to think through what the combination is of markets and regulation and networks that would together create the kinds of incentives within the aid system for reform. So that instead of having a series of somewhat piecemeal and perhaps sometimes contradictory um, ideas for how we can move forward, that we embrace the idea that somehow we need to see how these pieces of the jigsaw fit together and that people in the aid industry embrace the idea that um, if there's something wrong, that simply agreeing that that thing is wrong and that we're going to stop it isn't going to be enough, that we, ha that we have to change the equilibrium and not simply move away from the equilibrium. Um, if people so if people embrace that conceptual framework and then can begin to generate, I'm sure, much better ideas than I've been able to come up with, um, and, it, and it's not so much that I've come up with the ideas as brought together a lot of existing ideas and proposals and, and tried to see how they might fit together in this space, then I think that would be a, that could be an interesting conversation. Um, a discussion about aid in a post-bureaucratic age. And in some ways there are some parallels between what I'm saying and, uh, and, and that phrase of aid in a post-bureaucratic age. Very good. Well, watch this space. Um, Owen, Roger, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. 
been listening to Development Drums, presented by our guest presenter, Alison Evans of the Overseas Development Institute. Alison was talking to me, Owen Bader, and to Roger Riddell of Oxford Policy Management. You can download more episodes of Development Drums from iTunes, free, or you can go to developmentdrums.org. In the next edition of Development Drums, I'll be talking to Mushtaq Khan and Daniel Kaufman about corruption. Knowing that you lie, straight face, while I cry, still I'd look to find a reason to believe someone like you makes it hard to live without somebody else. Someone like you makes it easy to give. Never think of myself If I gave you time to change my mind I'd find a way to leave the past behind Knowing that you lied Straight face while I cried Still I'd look to find a reason to believe If I listened long enough to you, I'd find a way to believe it's all true. Knowing that you lied, straight face while I cried, still I'd look to find a reason to believe.